Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 10. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. I am Jesse Leahy, and my co-host today is Marty Leahy, who is not only my dad, but also a fellow business geek. He has an MBA, spent many years in leadership roles at a Fortune 500 company, was also CFO of a few organizations, and 10 years ago, he started up a restaurant and catering business that he still leads today. As you can imagine, at our family get-togethers, you will usually find Dad and I hold up talking about business and leadership issues and ideas. Dad, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jess. Glad to be here. Now, you and I... Have both been reading through Daniel Pink's book, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. I have enjoyed it. Now, in Drive, Daniel Pink is talking about what he calls Motivation 3.0. And he kind of tracks the history of motivation in terms of management theory. And he considers Motivation 1.0 being kind of the uh, hunter-gatherer where your people were just motivated to survive. And then motivation 2.0 is kind of carrot-and-stick motivation. And that has been uh, basically the predominant motivation in, in under consideration in modern management theory. Ever, ever since the days of Frederick Taylor and the, in scientific management, there's been this idea of using incentives and disincentives to get people to do the work and create the results that you want. And Daniel says that in, in the 21st century, and really starting in the late 20th century, the type of work that people do has changed, and it's made that motivation 2.0 less effective and maybe it never really was the, the best way to motivate people but in in this day and age motivation 3.0 is really looking for intrinsic motivation as opposed to carrot and stick extrinsic motivation and so he ha- he basically sees a dichotomy in terms of two types of motivation happening in the workplace today one being extrinsic motivation which he calls type x and then the other being intrinsic motivation, which he calls type I. Uh, I see that he actually is, is breaking it down, intrinsic drive, into three major areas, those being autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Uh, from your study of what he's, what he's trying to explain there, how would you describe what he means by autonomy? Autonomy is the person's ability to choose their own destiny to to have control over what work they do, how they do it, where they do it, when they do it, and who they do it with. And if you think back to the, let's say that, you know, 1900, a worker on the factory floor had pretty much zero autonomy. Or let's say you were an employee of one of Henry Ford's, 
you had to be at work at a certain time, you had to be at a certain spot on the in the assembly line, and you you, you did the same thing all day, and you, and you had no choice over any of those things. Now, if you fast forward to a lot of knowledge work that happens today, we see people um, who are really thriving when they have more authority, uh, more autonomy. They have flexible work hours. Maybe they work uh, from home occasionally or all the time. Uh, maybe they, they have a certain amount of their time that they can have discretion over what type of work they do. You know, you see a company like uh, Google that ha- allows people to spend one day a week working on any type of work they want to with whoever they want to. They basically, you know, go recruit anybody in the company and, and say, hey, let's let's come up with a new idea for such and such. So that's kind of the, the spectrum that you see in terms of autonomy. And it's an intrinsically motivating factor when you, ha- as the worker, when you have autonomy. Most people just get geeked out of the the idea of, in a way, being their own boss. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, it's kind of the you know, not having someone always looking over over your shoulder, feeling, and kind of makes me wonder. You know, when you describe you know the the, the knowledge uh, level of, of jobs today and the, the, the types of uh, you know jobs that require you actually fit in well with autonomy and. Using a lot of brain power and and uh, creativity on the job, and you contrast that with maybe the way we thought of jobs fifty or hundred years ago. And um, and I look at people working in my organization at the restaurant, and you know there are clearly jobs, uh, most of the jobs perhaps that you would not label as knowledge jobs. And so you ask yourself. Does something like autonomy have a lot of power in that kind of a workplace? And uh, and I don't know if I have have the clear answer to that. I, I can say that there are people in this type of an organization that almost seem to not want any autonomy. They don't uh, they don't appear to be comfortable without being directed. You know, they they seem to perform better. They seem to be happier and have feel like they've got structure when there's very clear expectations of what you do when. And they don't mind at all if you're looking over their, sh- their shoulder to see if they're uh, mixing the ingredients correctly, you know, grilling the steak properly, operating a uh, you know chemical dish machine washer properly. I mean, it's I don't know. Uh, what's your thought on that? I think first of all, there are different types of personalities, and different people have different maturity levels, if you will, that would that would factor into how much autonomy they want. But a lot of it is a, it's a, it's a growth thing. First of all, the, the idea of expectations, having clear expectations, does not actually, I would not say that contradicts the idea of autonomy. It's, and probably in the past, somebody who is sort of nervous about making their own decisions has not had clear expectations and, pro- and perhaps has been micromanaged and second-guessed a lot. And so they've kind of been trained that it's dangerous to make their own decision. And the best way to have clear expectations is to be micromanaged. But I think w- when you think about the, for the stages of 
maturity that people go through and, and people start out being dependent, kind of like a, a baby. And then uh, they, they get, if they can progress beyond that, they become independent. They're, they become, they want more and more independence that, that kind of builds on itself. And it's kind of like a, a teenager that that's one of the, the biggest motivations for a teenager is just to be their own boss, to be independent, not to be under anybody else's thumb. And once you get to practice that and you, and you get positive feedback on that, you can move beyond that and start to, to actually provide leadership for other people. But a lot of people are never really have had good feedback and, and coaching that to even be able to be, to, to have self-leadership, to be independent. So I think in the case of somebody like that, that if you can find small ways to give them some autonomy, uh, but also step back and look at how everybody who's involved in managing that person is treating them. You know, is that person being micromanaged? And, and that's easy to do without realizing that you're micromanaging something. But, but to compare that, and I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but to, if you go back to what we talked about in episode eight, there's this concept of having authority at the right level. And that's kind of how I, I, I that, that's a, a natural connection with this idea of autonomy. And what happens is a lot of times as managers, we, we don't even mean to be micromanaging, but the, the question or decision comes up and we're so used to making decisions that we make the decision. And the, the more interactive leadership style is going to recognize, hey, wait a minute, what's the right, what's the most appropriate level to be making this decision? Where does this authority really need to reside? And that, and you sort of identify, well, that really should be this person. And if you let them be, basically make the call, yeah, this is the right way to mix up these ingredients. And then you know, the proof is going to be in the pudding, literally. Okay, so how does that turn out? And, and you encourage them to be accountable for the outcome. And if, if that doesn't mean beating them up if the outcome turns out poorly, because that would be then sort of reinforcing the fact that they have no ability to make their own decisions. But if, uh, if it doesn't work, you know, help them go back and think through what they did. Basically, build them up to make the right, the better decision next time. But if you, if you can, can figure out where should the, resi- the decision lie and keep that there, then that person is going to get built up and, and eventually be able to operate at least at that independent level. And then they're going to start to feel the benefits of autonomy and it, it will become an intrinsic motivator. Does that ring true for you? I think that that's, that's really Great insight. And, you know, it really says that whether we're in a knowledge-based economy or, 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 or we're 50 or 100 years ago, it, it's, you know, while some jobs, uh, you know, allow for a lot more opportunities for autonomy, almost any job, really, it's, it's, it's really the person. And I think you're right. It's, it's uh, given, given a certain maturity level. Uh, I, I guess even a guy like you, if I if I put you in the in the back and said start washing dishes, after a while you would probably 
you know, yearn for, you know, doing this your way, you know, and, and just showing what you can do and maybe come up with new, new and better ways of, of doing something that appears to be a very simple task. And that's, that's pretty exciting because that says every job can be enriching and we just as, as leaders have to have enough, uh, you know, um, wisdom and, and foresight to see, to see what people's potential is and then let, let, them, let them achieve that. It's, it's a liberating thought when you think about it. Dad, I, I was just reminded of an experience that I had involving you. Back when I was a college student, there was one summer where you hired me for a month to work, for, maybe it was even two months, and I worked for you full-time at minimum wage gutting and renovating a ca- a 34-foot cabin cruiser boat, which which you still have today. And it was a bit of a gamble on your part because I didn't know the first thing about doing that type of work, but you also hired a, a master craftsman to basically be a consultant on the project. And he, he would stop by uh, once a week or every two weeks or so and look at my work and tell me what to do next. And the boat was being stored about 45 minutes outside of town at a friend's barn. So I was totally on my own with no really feedback or direction for days and weeks at a time. And that was both a a great feeling and a scary feeling for me. Uh, it was a great feeling because I'd already had a number of experiences in life that prepared me to really be on my own. And I was uh, pretty self-motivated. I, I stayed very focused and productive the whole time. You know, I was working eight hours a day with, with zero supervision. But I remember a conversation we had probably three or four weeks into it where I, I wasn't getting enough feedback and I... I basically had to ask you if you really felt like you were getting your money's worth because I was conscious of the fact that I really didn't have any practice or skill or expertise in this area and that I was probably being very inefficient and wasting a lot of time. And I, I remember you be stopping and you know listening to my concerns and validating that, yes, you you were very happy with the, the value that you were getting out of the out of my time and the work and the, as far as you were concerned the whole experience was was going really well and when you when you compare that to what a lot of I mean just think about it, I was a, I was a teenager I was probably ni- I think I was nineteen and you, when you typically think of a teenager you think that they well they can't self supervise themselves that but they can if they've got the proper if if they, they've kind of been built up to be properly intrinsically motivated. I mean, it, I was just being paid minimum wage. There was no carrot and stick. It was just the, the motivation to do good work, to, to please you, and to see this boat become a beautiful thing once again. That's an interesting memory from 20 years ago. I, if only <laughs> I would have known then what I know now, I would have I would have terminated that project. I could have saved myself a lot of money over the years because for the next 20 years, I kept spending a lot of money in that boat, <laughs> which is still a great boat, but you know how boats are. A, a great example, as you say, of, of just letting, giving someone the freedom to, to you know, show what, the, what they can do and, and uh, 
really grow into something. Well, listen, Jess, let's uh, let's take a look at the other, the, the second of these three things that that uh, Pink has described as being the key components of a of intrinsic drive, and, and that would be mastery. What, what does that say to you? That has to do with really becoming top of your game in a certain area. It's the intrinsic motivation to simply excel at something, and most people recognize as they get far enough along that they're, they're never really going to truly be a complete master. And so it's something that basically can be endlessly motivating. But you look at the story that we just told, there were two, besides you, there were two other characters. There was me, a complete novice, and there was the, the master craftsman who, who was much further along toward being the top of the game. And he, you know, what motivated him, and you, you remember, he was geeky. I mean, he, he, he was totally into making boats become beautiful. He, he just absolutely loved the craftsmanship. And Pink says that that is a, an intrinsic motivator. Now, I, I have to admit, this is the, of the three, this is the one that I'm not sure I buy what he's saying. I, I'm not sure it's, a, it's, it's as universally motivating as he maintains in the book. And I think it's, it's harder as a leader to really... You, inspire people to make that a motivator for them. And I think part of it is, you know, when he, even in the book, when he talks about how do you make that happen, a lot of what he's talking about is, well, it just takes, you know, years and years of a lot of hard work and practice and repetition. And, and it's what makes a, a, a musician become great. I mean, if you ask any group of people, how many of you took piano lessons as a, as a kid? you're going to see, or any kind of music lessons as a kid, you're going to see a, probably the majority of hands go up. How many of you, if I asked you to come up and, and play us something right now that might impress us, how many of you could do that? You're going to see almost all hands go down. Very few hands will be up, and those will be the ones that are, that are masters. And, you know, what's the difference? Well, the difference is the masters put in a heck of a lot of practice. You, you know, from uh, my daughter, Cecily, she she practices piano at least an hour, probably two hours a day, and nobody's standing over her making her do that. I mean, she she's just self-motivated for the love of creating music. And and I, I don't disagree that that's not that that's certainly an intrinsic motivator. I just question how universal that is. It seems like very few people uh really become really take on that intrinsic motivation for mastery in any given field. What, what do you think? Well, I, 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 I personally believe that that desire for mastery is, is in all of us. And, you know, many of us are really f become fortunate when we discover something, and it could be anything, just about anything, that turns on that, that desire that, that Cecily has. You know, I was Last night, sitting sitting at at our bar, and there was a a lawyer sitting there who comes in quite a bit, a guy that I've really come to respect, been in the practice many years, and I was thinking about our, our discussion here today, and I I decided to sort of probe him a little bit, and I said, you know, you I, you're a real successful lawyer, um, you know, I've discussed a number of your cases with you. He he, a lot of times will 
will work as an arbitrator in some disputes <clears throat> and and he you know he'll tell me about these briefs that he gets in that are numerous numerous pages and he's say has to put hours and hours into reading and understanding all the issues and the arguments and so forth and I said what is it that really drives you to to do that i mean you don't have your senior partners chasing you around to make sure you read those briefs and everything and well he he, he clicked off a number of things but you could tell he was he he had that gleam in his eye he he really uh in, enjoyed that kind of work it was it wasn't like um torture to go through it and he got a certain a high level of satisfaction out of out of you know pulling something together that at the end of the day he 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 could say to himself you know i've i've i'm going to bring something really positive back to my clients and when they achieve their objective in this matter you know i'm i'm just going to all by myself get a huge amount of satisfaction out of that so i th- i think that each of us finds something and it might even be something that, uh, in our in our private life, you know, recreational or whatever, that just just hits a nerve, and you get personal satisfaction out of getting better and better at something. You know what you're saying does ring true with me, and and maybe it's a, a fact of people having the opportunities to discover the activities or the area that is really going to ignite their passion and and that they're really wired for. And I'm sure that can change over time. I I was just thinking about how you and I have gotten so excited about endurance events, especially triathlons and marathons, and how when, when when I first got interested in that in 2009, I it was primarily because I, th- number one, as a fitness activity, I was motivated to, I wanted to take my physical fitness to a higher level. I'd always been athletic and, and got exercise, but I, I, I just saw my health gradually declining and I, and I wanted to reverse that. But I also just had the suspicion that you know, I, I probably could do pretty well in the field of triathlons because I'm a naturally good swimmer. Or at least I, I, t- I had a lot of swim team experience growing up. And so if nothing, I may not, I may suck as a runner and, and may suck as a biker, but I can run and I can bike and most people have a very hard time swimming. So I thought, well, at least I can, I can, I won't be maybe that embarrassed uh, because of my performance on the swim part. And I discovered over time that I, I had fun and not just seeing the improvement in my health, but actually seeing, gradually seeing me master the art of triathlons and master uh, running, you know, running marathon lengths, which I haven't gotten to yet, but I, I've run several half marathons. And when you compare my, how I, just the times that I used to get in 2009 and 2010 and even early this year. I mean, uh, that seems like ancient history because of the endurance and the technique that I've built up in, in time. Now, I, I don't have the passion to want to go become a, a professional athlete or even to... to I, I really I have other priorities in my life 
that I that I balance with, such as business and and family. And so I'm just not motivated to spend more than a few hours each week on training for this. But so I I, I don't wanna, I'm not at this point have no desire to become a supermaster. And and I also I'm trying to keep it at a keep things at a pace so that I don't get burnt out because I want to be doing this in ten years and I want to be doing it in twenty years and thirty years and so on from now, and not it just be a not have it just be a five year fad. But I guess you know what motivates me to continue in that besides the fitness side, it's not like competition. I really don't care how I perform against anybody else. I mean, you and I uh, have been doing these together now with some other family and friends and we have some friendly competition that just kind of adds some fun to it but it's not really what motivates it's it has more to do with just seeing myself get better and actually almost feel the art of of uh running and the art of swimming and the art of biking i couldn't agree more yeah let's um move on to the third aspect here jess which is uh a word that you kind of hear a lot of today, um, maybe it gets beat up and overused, but the word is purpose. That's right. You do hear it a lot, but I think it's because it's so true and it's it's so powerful. And purpose has to do with the, as Pink defines it, it has to do with the greater meaning of the work that you're doing. Now, I'm, I would take it a step further and say, well, what what... To, to try to break it down a little more, I think it's the greater meaning is always going to mean two things. One is results that matter, and two, it's a, it's human results that matter. It's it's it, it it's got to affect people. So most work that you uh, do ultimately has the opportunity to affect people's lives. But in the in any given job it's it's easy to lose sight of that. And and sometimes maybe the work needs to be re-engineered or the company needs to be changed to actually be pursuing a people-driven purpose. Uh let let's just say your your restaurant, your job is to just uh serve up as many dinners as you can and make as much money as you can, right? Well, that's, yeah, I guess that's the bottom line. <laughs> now, how motivating is that going to be for your staff? I don't think that's motivating at all for my staff. So what, but is there any greater purpose to the work that your restaurant and catering business does? Yes, and, and I think it's, we, we try to make it the first and central purpose of, of everything we do, and, and uh and that is uh, achieving that result with 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 the customer. You know that each person in our organization somehow or another has to be able to to uh, experience that reaction from a customer when they are very happy and pleased and overjoyed with something that you've been a part of creating. And um, that's to me is the kind of thing that could. It can charge everybody every hour of every shift, you know, that, that uh, okay, it's a job, you know, okay, they get paid and, and so forth. But, it, but if they're not somehow uh, drinking that energy a little bit that's coming back from the customers, then I, I think that 
it becomes a pretty long shift. I love that phrase you just said, drinking that energy that comes from the, the customers. So you, your work at the restaurant, and, and of course you have other facets to your business um, that would have different types of purpose, but within your restaurant walls, you're, you are creating energy within the customers. They're, they're coming to your restaurant for some reason, whether they know it or not. And if, if they can kind of leave more energized than when they got there, uh, that's a pretty interesting thing. I mean, you, you basically created a little moment of happiness, of satisfaction for them. And, and maybe they take that on into wh wherever they're going next, whether it's with their, to be with their family or to, to into their workplace. And they've got some energy that they, that they didn't have before. And that's easy to see how that would be intrinsically motivating for a staff person to see that energy uh, happen in in the in the customer and then actually get to drink some of that energy. That's that's very cool. Yeah, and it's not something a lot of businesses have have easy access to, but this kind of a business, uh, you know, all retail businesses, I suppose. Uh, face-to-face -face businesses and in a lot of other services, you know, healthcare and others I, I can think of, you are actually touching, in some cases, literally touching customers. And we, and really, in, in what you're doing is your product, what you're selling is really an experience. So anyways, getting, getting back to purpose, I mean, I would hope that em employees in my organization and other organizations that are selling an experience understand right off the get, I mean, in, that they don't even have to think about it, but they, they know that their first purpose is to, is to uh, provide a really great experience and for which you'll, you'll get immediate feedback, which is part of the benefit of the job. And you can, and that, that has a way of, you know, positive energy comes back. And it's, it's a circular type thing. And, and I, it's not unusual for employees to tell me that they look forward to coming to work. They have a good time here. Yeah, it's work. Yeah, I don't like scrubbing behind this and that to keep things, you know, looking really great. But I enjoy being here. Yeah, that that's that's very exciting. So we talked about the the three intrinsic motivations that Daniel Pink identified in his book: autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And what, what I'd like to do in a future conversation is talk about how we can as leaders really take advantage of those and and i i think both put those into action but but actually go beyond those because I, as i read the book i just saw some additional things that were important in motivating people and, and in creating team results that really weren't addressed in that book now next week uh, we're going to be interviewing uh tom henschel an executive coach about how to develop executive presence. So uh, when we get back together, Dad, on uh, in episode twelve, let's talk about uh, putting this uh, these these uh, this type I uh, drive the uh, motivation three into action. All right, sounds like it's going to be a good time. As we wrap up today's show, I would just like to say thank you to all our listeners for your support. The Engaging Leader podcast continues to be featured as new and notable for iTunes business podcasts, which is 
I got to say, key to helping new listeners find out about our show. A big reason for being on that list is the recent reviews we've received on iTunes. Thank you to our recent guest, Helio Fred Garcia, author of The Power of Communication, for a very gracious review. Also, thank you for other reviews from Chelsea Daniels from The Candy Preserver, Rob Clinton, author and career coach from 180coach.com, and Christopher Battles, who blogs at ChristopherBattles.net. We would love to know your thoughts about this episode. You can leave comments on our show notes at engagingleader.com or connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter, where I am at Jesse Leahy. The Engaging Leader Podcast is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers on internal communication strategies. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Arthur Hankey, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always leading and communicating. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.